Thank you for listening to Mormon Discussion Podcast. I am your host, Bill Real. I just want to make a plea to listeners. This podcast survives on the financial contributions of listeners like you. Please help keep the podcast alive by becoming a premium subscriber by going to mormondiscussionpodcast.org and becoming a subscriber today. You can do so for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. This greatly supports the podcast. And if you donate at a higher level, $50 or $100 a year, you get a free Mormon Discussion Podcast logo t-shirt. Also, don't forget the new bookstore that you can reach on the website by clicking the link, Bookstore. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Craig Harleen, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you doing today? Doing fine. Thanks for having me here, Bill. Awesome. Great to have you on. Uh, Craig Harleen is the author of Way Below the Angels, the pretty clearly troubled but not even close to tragic confessions of a real live Mormon missionary. I love the title. Uh, Craig, did you, did you come up with that or did the publisher come up with that? Uh, no, that just kind of spilled out of me. <laughs> okay. Well, why don't you start us off and give us kind of a, a brief bio of, of who you are and some of the things you've done previously and, and then we'll jump into the book. I'm a professor right now of European history at BYU, and I mostly teach courses on uh, religious history, the Reformation, and history of Christianity. Uh, I went on this mission to Belgium that is written about here, um, and I was an undergrad at BYU. I grew up in California, um, so it kind of gives you a general background. Got it. Uh, the book, why the book? What uh, what prompted you to, to decide that this was something you need to go down on paper? Right. Well, I wanted to write about it soon after I came home from the mission, actually, like from the time I was about 25. So this is many, many years ago. And I wanted to write about it because I started having this bad dream that I had to go on another mission. And, and I could not make sense of it. And I felt bad about having it because I knew I'd gotten a lot of good things out of my mission. So to have this dream and to be afraid of going on another mission, you know, wake up in a cold sweat and things, I, I just, it, I, I couldn't understand what was happening. And I thought writing about it would be a good way to try to process that. So um, I took, made some notes even way back then, we had some ideas, but then I got going in my PhD program and um, just got put on a hold, I suppose. And in the meantime, I kept talking to other missionaries. And so, I'm, again, I've been wanting to write about it a long time. And I, it finally, it seemed like the right moment. It seems like it seems like other people are starting to write about it in a similar way. And that is, you know, just kind of cleaning the experience, trying to be frank about it, whether instead of trying to say it's a wonderful thing or it's a horrible thing, you know, you're just trying to say, here's what it is. And and I think this is kind of in the zeitgeist. And, and um, so I, I felt like the right time to write about it now, finally. I, I hear that. And I think you hit on something, which is this idea. And I've talked to, I didn't serve a mission. I joined the church as a late teenager and chose not to go. And, and, uh, it's one of the things I regretted not doing. I just saw the missionaries around me and, and felt like they were just doing such a great work and, and really appreciated their service. But over the years, having spoke to different missionaries who have come back, I've, and having had some deep conversations with some of them, there seems to be this cultural pressure on missionaries to to only talk about the positives and to to paint missions in the in the best perspective and i i really appreciated your book because it seems like you're doing exactly what you said which is to tackle this in a way that just says hey look this is exactly what my mission was good and bad but before we get into that i want to back up a moment and talk about some of the expectations placed on you specifically, but our young women and young men in general. Uh, maybe talk for a moment about your growing up in the church and, and what kind of expectations you had about a mission, but then also lead us into talking about your mission call. Uh, let's see. Well, 
I, I think the expectations are partly a function of who your immediate leaders happen to be and family and also your own personality and how you interpret these things. Because, you know, there were kids who grew up in the same neighborhood, same ward that I did, and I don't think they had exactly the same expectations. So all of these things factor in. And, I, and so it's hard to say that, you know, the, the, the church does this or does that when there's so many different people involved. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, it, ultimately you have to take kind of responsibility for the expectations you have yourself. But on the other hand, those expectations don't happen in a vacuum. They do, they're not, uh, I didn't make this stuff up, you know, I mean, some, some of these things were, were things I imagined. but I'd say the biggest expectation was developed in me from listening to and watching the missionaries who came home. And that's that's where I saw it. And you kind of had this heroic image of them because they you only see them, as, you know, when they're back. They speak this new language. They're so much different. They seem to be so much different from who they were before they left. And so I thought, this is what I wanted to. You know, this is fantastic. I wanted to be somebody who I was not. <laughs> I wanted to be somebody better than, than this uh, pretty average person I thought I was. So uh, I think that had a lot to do with it. Um, but then there are certainly people, too, who, you know, who, who kind of promote the, this holy, wonderful view of a mission. And that's certainly what I had. And some things you just have to learn about by going through them. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, but but on the other hand, I think sometimes maybe we can help temper the expectations a little bit too. Right. And, and when you got your mission call, were you expecting in a way to go to a certain place? Were you, were you happy with the place that the Lord had sent you? Yeah, I felt like, um, I felt like I needed to go to some really exotic place, you know, that was suited to my aspirations. Because <laughs> the, the farther away and the more exotic, you know, the better the call was. That, that was kind of the impression I had. And so when, when I got called to Belgium, I was really happy about that. And yeah, I'd kind of hoped to go to Europe, but you know, there's always that fear. If you hope to go somewhere, you wouldn't actually go there. You know, you'd be, have, you'd have to be taught a lesson in humility, but uh, you should want to go to Montana. If you, know, if you want to go to Europe, you should really want to go to Montana or Nevada or something like this, you know, somewhere close by, you know, nothing against Montana or Nevada. It's just that I grew up in right. California. And so those didn't, those didn't seem so terribly exotic. Was there was there any place that you were hoping not to get called to? I think I think every missionary has that. They're like, I please don't call me. like please don't call me to the Ohio mission, yeah, right? In my case, it was probably Nevada. One of my friends got called to Reno, and I just I just about fell over. It's only a couple hundred miles away, you know. How heroic could that be? Um, in my case, it was probably Utah. I did not want to go to Utah, and one of my friends got his mission call the same day I did, and he called me up. And said, "Guess where I'm going?" And and I blurted out the first horrible thing I could imagine, which was Utah. And he's and he was just stunned. He said, "How did you know?" And I said, "Because that's where I did not want to go," which is really a cruel thing to say. But uh, you know, I was so happy about my unaccustomed bit of good fortune of going to Belgium that I I was pretty thoughtless. <laughs> well, so you go on your mission. Let's uh, let's ask this. Um, as far as the things that you experience, what what made your mission different? than every other missionary out there. I suppose everybody has a unique mission somehow, but I'm not, I guess one of the reasons I wrote the book is that I think there is an awful lot of overlap uh, among us all. So, uh, you know, what makes it completely different is our particular personality, I suppose, and then the circumstances that we always find, we find ourselves in. Um, so I don't know that it was, I don't know that it was unique. And, and if it was, I don't know that I would have written the book. I, I felt like there was enough commonality there. And I like that. And I like the idea, too, that, you know, there's other uh, young men and young women who have come back from missions who perhaps are having some of this, the same kind of struggle with with 
having had their expectations change so dramatically and uh, and to have a book like this to go to and say, hey, okay, I'm not alone. There's other people who are thinking these same kinds of things. Let's talk about that for a moment. So you've got these expectations that you, you grow up with that you've maybe reinforced to some extent yourself. You get out on your mission and a mission is a lot tougher, a lot more of people turning you away perhaps than what you thought. How do you handle kind of changing your paradigm? How do you handle going from this simple view that all is going to be just perfect and 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 see through these rose-colored glasses to realizing that a mission is a really tough thing and that it requires you to completely change the framework in which you had you had kind of set up for this uh, this experience? Yeah, it's a lot easier to say that than to do it, it, it because it took a long time. The first, I mean, you have several choices don't you when things don't go right i suppose and and one is you just try harder and you keep doing what you were doing but you get better at it so you think the problem is well i need to develop some more skills i need to get better at language i need to get better at technique um so and there's nothing wrong with that it's good to dig inside yourself i think and and challenge yourself and try to be better at whatever you're doing so i I think that's one response uh then you could go with that forever though Uh, you could keep finding other things you can improve on, and especially when you start saying, how can I improve in the spiritual realm, right? How can I be more focused? How can I be more in tune with things and so on? And that could go on forever. You could always find something. We had a list of 113 things in my mission. Uh, About half of them were these proselyting skills, and the other half were points of spirituality. And it was a checklist If, if you did this the implication was if you did all these things, then things would go right. And, you know, it was really hard to check off everything on that list. So you could, you could, you could just keep going like that forever. That another response would be if you got tired of that, you could just say, I give up. You know, I just, I have no faith in this system, or maybe I'm even losing faith altogether because it's not going at all the way that I expected it would go. So those are your first two choices. You kind of take the blame and you say, it's not going the way I expected because there's something wrong with me. I don't have enough faith. I'm not spiritual enough. I don't have you know good enough skills, whatever. Um, and then the other is just to give up altogether. And then finally, and this only emerged toward the very end and through a lot of hard lessons and almost out of desperation rather than because it was some great insight. But almost out of desperation, it was like, okay, I'm going to go crazy here. I don't want to give up. I still feel like I believe, but maybe I don't believe in the same way. Um, but obviously that system isn't working and I'm going to go crazy. So I've, I've got to do something else. And, and si- I simply changed my expectation. Most of the time we change, try to change ourselves, but and it somehow if we change the ideals or the expectations, we feel like we're giving up on them. We feel like we're losing, we showing we don't have enough faith because, you know, you can do anything if you have faith, right? That's the mantra. And we just have to have enough faith. And, and so I, I finally just, now I'm going to change what my expectations are. And I, you know, you say you lower them. I don't know that I lower them. I, I changed them from thinking that I was going to convert so many people to just hoping to make friends with people. And that was not something that was really on the agenda that was acceptable even. You know, we often heard, you're not here to make friends with people. <laughs> and so I'm like, no, this is this is the way you survive. And you give them good impressions, uh, but mostly you're not, you're not trying to set an example. You're just trying to be who you are and hoping you connect with people. And that turned out to be a lot more satisfying and a lot more doable in a place like Belgium as well. And 
that was a huge lesson for life in general because we all have to go through that. In whatever culture we live, we have ideals and expectations, and they're necessary. Um, what, what, if you're in music, if you're in sports, if, if you're in religion, school, whatever, you have these ideals, you, that you, these models. And part of maturing is to realize that, you know, you are not the model. You are not uh, Michael Jordan <laughs> you, or whoever, you know, you, you wanted to be. You're not Wilford Woodruff. Um, and it's sobering to have to deal with that. And, and But it's also, I think that's how you become human and adult and reach the measure of your creation, however you want to call it, is is that you you uh, you are you realize who you are and what you can do and you still strive, but you don't compare yourself any longer or measure success or failure by whether you match up to this model that's out there. You you kind of redefine the model uh, within terms that you can reach. Right, but you're but you're redefining the model in the midst. And I'm, and I'm just going to make an assumption here. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But if you take the average mission president, for instance, and and they're constantly you know saying, hey, if you do these things, then these things will happen, or or if you make this sacrifice, then you'll end up with baptisms, and if you're willing to put this effort in, then this will be the end result. And so you're redefining in a sense, what God's expectation of you as a missionary is, but you're doing that in the midst of people around you still setting a bar that you don't see as valid. How do you, how do you kind of reconcile that right in the midst of others around you still throwing that, that old framework at you? Well, it's really hard and it doesn't happen overnight because ultimately it means trusting in yourself or at least trusting in the voice that's within you that you believe in Mormon theology is also from God, right? I mean, if you're one of God's children, um, you, you know, you have this kind of divine spark in you. You also have this connection yourself to God. It takes a lot of nerve, um, and it doesn't happen overnight. You're still kind of go back and forth one minute. You can have all this resolve to kind of dig deeper within in the sense of, um, not, not, trying to make yourself perfect, but in the sense of trusting yourself and trusting the voices that you feel or this communication that you feel with with God. Um, and, and you might go from trusting that one minute to, you know, not trusting it the next and listening to everybody around you and, and going back and forth. And I think it's a constant process. And I, I think it happens in our lives all the time. It doesn't just happen on a mission. On a mission, it's, it's maybe magnified because... Um, you know, you're so focused on that particular thing, you've got no other responsibilities. But um, it, it is really hard to stick with that and, and to trust that voice. Uh, it, I don't know what the secret is. I think you have to kind of, there's no public way to talk about it. And, and that, that's what was so hard, I think, for me, is that I, I just kind of had to do this on my own and not really talk about it with anyone. And I think that's the same dynamic that's at work when you come home and you're willing to talk about some of the hard things in private with your friends, but you still don't talk about them in public. It's like we're all determined to protect this, you know, kind of version of a mission that we held up as the one true version or something. And and really, the the whole point is to create your own version of this mission and and to develop it. But it takes a lot of nerve to do that in life as well as on a mission. Right, right. And I know, you know, you're speaking about this as you talk about it being kind of a process. I think some people think that it's a matter of kind of the light switch going on, but in reality, it's probably more of like a dimmer switch where just little by little, you're kind of adjusting and, and figuring it out. I, uh, I wanted to ask you this. You, you said when you first got back from your mission, you wanted to write this book 
and and yet here we are years later and and you've finally done that i'm assuming it's safe to say that in some ways your perspective now is way different than had you written that book when you first got off your mission uh, i think that's true i think it would be true if i wrote it at 40 or 50 or 60 it'd probably be slightly different every time our perspective is always changing um, our autobiographical memory changes. Um, the studies I've read about that suggest that memory is mostly about meaning we assign to things rather than this kind of tape recorder sort of um, memory that that we might have once believed in. But our, our, our meaning that we assign to things in the past regularly shifting. So, yeah, I, I definitely would have written about it differently. But having said that, the the essential feelings that I had, I'm pretty confident, are the same at 25 as now. I think I've expressed them differently now. <clears throat> I think I would put them into maybe different light, tell them in a different way. But but I wrote the book mostly from memory. Um, I have all my journals, you know, like a good historian. I have all my journals, all my letters uh, from people. Also, you know, so I've got all kinds of information. And I started taking notes from some of those things when I set out to write, but I, I thought, no, this will become too much a history book. And I'm mostly trying to convey feeling and emotion um, and the, you know, the inter- interior life of something. And I could do that mostly from my head. And so I looked, I looked at um, my journals and letters to confirm dates or to make sure I had events right. And sometimes I didn't remember the details right, but most of the time I did. <coughs> Excuse me. But what I especially remembered uh, was the feeling I had at a certain moment. I can still look at my journal and read what I wrote and remember what I didn't write. And it wasn't that I was lying. It was just that I was only writing about certain things. And so the book is probably the things that didn't make their way into my journal. <laughs> right. We're, uh, we're talking today with Craig Harling, uh, author of the book Way Below the Angels, uh, The Pretty Clearly Troubled But Not Even Close to Tragic Confessions of a Real-Life Mormon Missionary. Uh, Craig, I, I want to maybe just, I, I know some, a lot of my listeners have served missions and they're going to very much relate to the book and the experiences you have. And I just want to tease the book a little bit. I don't, I don't want to sit here and go over every, every experience you had, but perhaps uh, share with us a couple of the negative experiences that you had on your mission that really were eye opening for you. Because I, I think that those listening right away are going to relate to these and say, yeah, I had similar th- kind of things happen. Right. Well, the, the amount. Of, or the uh, extent to which people listen to you varies around the world, I'm sure. But the, the most difficult thing in, in the first place was just the shock that people did not want to listen very much. They didn't even want to hear a discussion, much less convert. So you could, you know, spend 60 hours a week knocking on doors and you might, you know, give a few discussions every week. That was really discouraging uh, because you just had this idea that people were just dying to hear you and I had no clue as to why they might not, you know, at the time I just attributed it to hard hearts and, you know, the devil and so on, and or that I wasn't worthy enough, you know, to convey the Holy Ghost to them. Those were those were my big um, analyses of why people converted or didn't convert or even why they would hear a discussion or not. But there's so many other things going on in, as to why uh, some people convert in a society and others don't or why some societies are more open to converting than others are. That was the first one. The first one was just the fact that people uh, didn't want to listen. And then the others were the when, you know, you, the companionship. Uh, issues. Uh, you're just not used to being around somebody that much. I mean, you, you, your college roommate, you're not around them that much. You're not around your family even that much because you're at school most of the day. Uh, and you're around somebody all the time. So the, 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 
the everyday sorts of challenges, you know, that, that wasn't traumatic. That was just, you know, you kind of get used to that. And it's really good for you, I think, to have to learn how to get along with different people. It, it got more serious when you had these kind of existential issues and conflicts between you, right, where you just, you just did not see any way to solve some of these problems. Fundamentally different people, and you could not even come to a kind of working relationship. That was, that was the biggest appointment. And that only happened one or two times with companions. But those were enough to, I think, re- those were the hardest points of my mission. I think that, that combined with the, the lack of converts, um, um, it just exacerbated it. Yeah, I just I just got done serving as a ward mission leader here in my ward. And, and one of the things I very much picked up on was when companionships were not getting along the absolute best. And, and you have this picture, right? The average member of the church, I think, has this idea that, you know, these two people are just getting along super well and they're the best of friends. But in, in some ways, it's, you don't really choose your companion. You don't really choose to, to associate with, you know, somebody that may be very different, have very different likes and dislikes. And that can be quite a challenge, can it? That is exactly right. Um, I, I remember when I was a kid and I was driving in the car with my mom and, and we saw the missionaries and they were on bikes, and they were like 50 yards away from each other, I mean far. And I said to my mom, why are they riding so far apart? And I said, doesn't he see that he's so far ahead? And my mom says, well, they don't always get along. And I couldn't believe that, you know. And I still didn't believe that to the time that I went on a mission, you know. I mean, the people I knew who were missionaries, they kind of gave this sense that, oh, yeah, you just get along. And I think some of it, if you've been on a mission, you know that's not true, but you just – you're just reluctant maybe to go into too many details with people who haven't been on missions, I suppose. But then when I got on a mission, one night I found myself and my companion was 50 yards ahead of me and not on a bike, but on foot. And I thought, my goodness, this is just what I saw when I was a kid. I can't believe it's happening. You know, maybe my mom was right about that, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It can be quite the challenge. I, uh, I wanted to ask you too, you know, the the positives, I mean, I know in the book you talk about this idea that you go into a mission hoping to convert the people, and there's this idea that they, in a sense, converted you. Maybe speak for a moment about the positive aspects of uh, of serving for two years. Right. In my particular case, because, you know, there, there weren't really converts, you had to redefine uh, what you meant by success or, you know, what it meant to be a missionary. If, if you go to a place where the model works, then you never question this. You just assume that People convert because of your hard work and so on, or your faith. Um, but if you go to another place, you really have to think about this hard and, and what, what is it? And, and so what I got out of it was they have these relationships that I was able to build. And I mean, I've stayed in touch with these people. I, I go back to Europe all the time for my work as a historian. So I'm able to actually maintain relationships with people, um, most of whom are not LDS and certainly none of whom were converts of mine. Um, so that, that was the strongest point. And I was just so glad to get to know these people. And I was so stunned at what I was learning from them. You know, they're almost all Catholic. I couldn't imagine that I would have things to learn from them. And, and so the biggest shock at the end was not only that I had things to learn from them, but that they might've learned less from me than I learned from them, you know, just by who they were. And so just for being in their orbit for a while, I felt like I benefited and I learned these great life lessons about goodness, for instance. I mean, these people have the biggest hearts that I'd, that I'd ever known, or maybe that I'd ever paid attention to. They were probably just as big hearted people in my hometown, but you know, you don't always recognize this in your hometown. And so I, uh, that was a big stunner to me that I had learned so much goodness from them. 
You know, let's, let's talk about that for just a moment. The, I, I think, and again, I, you talked about this earlier, that it differs based on the leadership you have in your specific ward. It may differ in kind of the cultural things that, that your local area does in regards with the church. But I think often for, for at least some members, there's this perception that we kind of put across and we talk about ourselves as the true church and, and we kind of paint ourselves sometimes as being more blessed or better than than other faiths, and I I think sometimes we, as especially teenagers or young adults and getting ready to go on a mission, you have this idea that you're going to kind of correct all these misnomers that that others have about you, that you're going to show them the error of their ways, and I think and I think this is fair to say I think often as young people we we have this kind of lack of respect for those of other faiths, and going on a mission kind of puts you face to face with that. And forces you kind of to see people as human beings and for what they are and, and not necessarily stereotyping people as we sometimes do. How did you, how did you go about, I mean, you obviously you come in contact with Catholics. You see that they're, they're good people just like, like you and your family and those in your ward were. Um, how do you go about in a sense maybe changing or how do you feel today in your perception of, of those of other faiths and how we can maybe be better and how we treat others and see other faiths and not, not be arrogant in the way we kind of distinguish our faith from others. Right. It's the, it's the arrogance that kind of allows you to go though, that, you know, it's the, it gives you the zeal that gives you enough nerve to, to feel like, you know, their salvation depends on me. So I've got to do this, you know, right. The field is white and ready to yeah, harvest. And so you have to do this. And so that, you know, is that good or bad? I don't know. It, it certainly allows you to, to go do that. And then over time, if you feel like, well, Maybe that isn't the case. Maybe, you know, I have as much to learn from them as they do from me. It, it does temper your zeal a lot, but it improves your relationships, I think, as well. Um, in my case, um, I think what it did, it, it didn't happen overnight. And, and it wasn't like this is something I set out to learn. It just kind of slowly, you know, distilled in me that this was what was happening. And it, when I got back, it made me want to study uh, European religious history. And so that's, you know, that's what I've ended up doing the rest of my life. Um, and that has further deepened my interest in, in other religions and respect for them. And it's also made me see more what the religions have in common, especially Christian religions have in common with each other. But even beyond Christianity, there are all these commonalities. I think when you're on a mission, you're, you're so tuned in to emphasizing the differences between religions that's what people ask you you know what's it why should i listen to you what's the difference what makes your religion better so you focus on that and you're always trying to bring out the differences and keep hammering on those and sometimes you're desperately looking for differences um and then then the more i experience interactions with people of other faiths or the more i study other religions the more i see how much they have in common and that just changes your your perspective as well um so yeah, that's that's how it went for me. It just it just made me so much more respectful of them and see that we have a lot more in common than I'd imagined. Excellent. The uh there are those maybe who are listening who are preparing to go on a mission. Uh there may be, you know, this idea that they also have kind of set some some unrealistic expectations. Any any thoughts for you from you or advice from you for those who are preparing to go and, and things that they can do to maybe be better prepared as they enter right. the field? I think um you know, some people say to me, you should really give this book to people who are preparing to go on missions. And I say, well, it's more of a mission recovery book than a mission preparation book right. because there's some things you're only going to learn by experiencing them, you know, and, and you go, you get married, you go on a mission, whatever you do, you, you're just going to learn some things. Now, having said that, I think it, it is true that 
it's good at least to talk about some of these ideals and expectations a little more uh, realistically and to focus, you know, to, to say what, what should be the focus of a mission. And it really should be on creating relationships with people, I think. I mean, one of the most ironic things to that whole mantra of the 70s that, you know, you're not here to make friends, you're here to convert people. What studies of conversion show is that most people change religions or convert to another religion because of the promising new relationships in them. They don't convert primarily for doctrine. So, and, and this is just the opposite, you know, of how we were doing it. I, th I think it's beginning to change in how Mormon missionaries go about things. But in our day, you know, we were just the opposite. We, it was all about, oh, they'll convert to the, if they hear the true doctrine. And it, it turns out, no, relationships come first. And doctrine matters, but it, it comes second. It follows the relationships in, in most cases. So to me, it should be all about creating friends, you know, and making friends and, and for their own sake, not just with, you know, this idea or a backdoor way to converting people, but for their own sake. And then again, I, yeah, I think conversions probably naturally follow from that. And then it's you know, not so high pressure for, for everybody. But, but yeah, as far as, you know, expectations, people about to go, I think it helps to talk to uh, people who have been, who will talk to you honestly about it. And, and the themes in my book, even if you might not understand the depth of them before you went on a mission, I think it's nice to at least have those ideas in your head about focusing on relationships because then when things go wrong and your expectations aren't met, you at least have something to think with. You know, that was my issue. I felt completely alone and lost when I didn't have anything to think with. There was nobody giving me permission, you know, to create my own paradigm. <laughs> but I feel like that's what right. we have to do, but nobody was giving me permission. And that's really nerve wracking if you're attuned or you're accustomed to always looking for authority to tell you what to do. You know, who's telling me, who's saying this is okay? What authority figure is telling me this is okay? And it's really hard to, to you know, trust yourself in that way. But again, I think that's a part of growing up in any culture. Yeah. And, and as you say that, giving yourself permission to change your expectations, to change the way you frame things, maybe take a step back from, from missionary, your missionary experience for just a moment. And, and I'm kind of trying to point this back to the general theme of what I'm, what I'm trying to accomplish with the podcast. Going through your life, how has that same process helped you in terms of, of dealing with the church at large and perhaps giving yourself room to, to, to see things a little differently than the way it's being posed to you. Oh, uh, absolutely. It's it's been the constant in my life, I think, and that's why it was such this is the thing you get out of your mission you didn't expect to get and it turns out to be absolutely crucial. So yeah, this mission it was absolutely essential, you know, for things that I learned and maybe I could have learned them other ways too, but in my case that's how I learned them. And I see them repeated over and over in school, relationships, whatever. You have these high expectations uh that are kind of from outside, you know, this is how things should be and then uh and then you know having to to just adjust that i mean in I, I say this sometimes that in protestantism there's there's this expectation that we are going to fail we are born to sin we need we are going to be saved by grace we, we are born you know to fail if we just do it on our own the only way we won't fail is if god saves us in catholicism there's a whole sacramental system set up based on the assumption that you're going to fail, that you need grace. In Mormonism, we really think we're not going to fail. We really think we, we can hear, hear all the ideals and we're going to meet every single one of them. You know, At least that was the impression I had. I, I don't think all mature Mormons believe that, but I think that was certainly something I believed. So when, when things don't go the way you think, when, you can't, when you're not reaching your ideals, it's really hard to deal with that. And, that, and that's when the crisis set in. Uh, maybe, you know, the sense of failure, 
Um, maybe the bad dreams as well, I think, stem from that. You know, there's gap between expectations and, and reality. And so I, that pattern repeated itself over and over. Uh, in my, They have repeated themselves over and over in my life. And, and in church, I think we all do this. Uh, I think we don't want to say that we do. So we, we, we always want to pay homage you know, to our absolute ideals. We all say, oh, you can't be a cafeteria Mormon. You can't be. I don't know anybody who isn't a cafeteria, whatever, Catholic, Buddhist, uh, Mormon, whatever. You, it's, it's part of, to me, it's part of just being human and, and, and idiosyncratic. You're all a little bit different. Now, it doesn't mean you just throw all the community values out the window or something like this. It just means that, you know, you might have to decide you're going to do this. You're, you're going to have to choose this a little bit differently. You're going to have to set up this this new ideal, and it's it's really it sounds really dangerous. It sounds really you know fraught with fr- it is frightening. It's a lot easier to say just tell me what to do, right? I mean that's that's our classic mantra too. Just just tell me what to do and I'll do it, right? But uh, it, because that's a lot safer. But I think what makes you grow and what makes you become responsible is is and and you know if you want to talk about progressing toward being like our creator, you know this is what does it. You know having to make decisions yourself and, and figuring out what works for you. We're speaking today with Craig Harling, uh, author of Way Below the Angels. Uh, Craig, you talk in the book and you talked at the beginning of this interview about the, the nightmare you had uh, over and over about going back on a mission. I wanted to, to just ask you, do you, I mean, at, since you've written the book or perhaps since you've come back from your mission, you've talked to other missionaries, is this is this something that others are saying, hey, I, I have the exact same nightmare or I have the exact same thoughts? Yeah. Um, so when I, you know, when I first wanted to write it in my 20s, I, I, I put it off, but I kept talking to other missionaries. And so I've talked to so many, you know, hundreds of missionaries, you know, with the specific purpose in mind of someday writing a book. I've talked to so many missionaries about their experiences, trying to understand if they felt some of these same things. But it took me 10 or 15 years to ask them if they had this nightmare, too, because I was so ashamed of it. And when I finally started asking people, most of them had had it. And and it's not uncommon, I think, to have dreams about things that we've tried, you know, especially things that are hard. Like, you know, you have dreams that you forgot to take a class in school. You had some bad sports dream, you know, that you failed at, um, some other dreams. But this dream was especially frightening to me just because it seemed so wrapped up with my salvation. And I think it was frightening to many others as well. So not everybody had had it. Uh, there were people who had no clue what I was talking about. You know, they just laughed at me. It's like, who would have a dream like that, right? And so, I, and I think those were people who, you know, they, they just fit so wonderfully into mission culture. There, there was no, there was no problem. But uh, the people who fit less easily, I think, were the ones who tended to have this. It wasn't really a matter of where you went on a mission. It was more your personality and your expectations. Um, and so, yeah, I found, I'd say, I don't, I didn't take a statistical sample, but. Easily, more than half of the people that I talked to had had this and knew exactly uh, what I was talking about. And even just last month, a fellow wrote me who'd read the book, and he's you know older than I am. He's 60, 63, or 64. And he, he wrote and said, you know, I haven't been Mormon in 10 or 15 years, but I still have this dream. And he said, I don't believe in anything anymore, and I still go on the mission uh, in my dream. You know, that that's part of the dream is that you, that you agree to go. And he says, I still always say yes. <laughs> and he said, I thought I this was my own private dream. You know, I never thought anybody else that had this, had had this problem so uh, it's been interesting to talk to people about it mm. um craig where can people find the book um amazon might be the easiest place i think it's in bookstores uh various bookstores uh, whatever bookstores are left in the country it's still around in those as well but but uh amazon or the publisher's website which is erdman's uh christian publisher wonderful i'll make sure i link to the book uh, from my site when the episode goes up uh, craig harling thank you so much for being on the podcast and i appreciate the chance today to talk to you about uh 
kind of how we change our expectations and using the missionary experience kind of as the, the model for that and appreciate your willingness. And I think in some regards, courage to, to be outspoken and say, look, uh, you know, I know lots of us come home and we say all the right things, but let's just put our experience out there for what it is. Thank you so much for being on. Thanks for having me, Bill. Taking out my issues never healed the 